Welcome to Career in Ruins, where according to ChatGPT, this week we will be unravelling the mysteries and discoveries that shape the fascinating realms of archaeology. GPT. Yeah, mate, you want to be sending that around to your students. <laughs> I know, I know. That was my day today, a lecture on generative AI and uh, what is AI literacy. It was a, <laughs> it was an interesting one. So someone asked me last week what our institutional position on AI is, and I still don't know. I've given our lecture on it today, and I'm still not 100% sure where any of us stand. Maybe you could ask ChatGPT to tell you what your institutional position should be on AI. I I, d I did <laughs> i did it was quite positive <laughs> it also it, it, i also got it to write its own introduction which was uh i just made me sound a bit like a twat to be honest <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty clever then you know yeah. what it's doing <laughs> yeah it was, it was a good life lesson for the students but no it was a fun day and i i i, I i've been lucky this semester well i don't know if lucky's the right word i've not had a huge amount of teaching this semester because i've mostly been doing admin um so it was nice to get back in the lecture theater and, and have some fun and you know we i taught it along with our dear colleague prof gillings who was uh in there heckling me the whole time so it's a really nice day sounds like a great day oh yeah. how you been last time i saw you we were both we were both in ridiculous outfits and watching and um, hundreds of students walk past us on a stage I was wondering where you were going with that story. The last time I saw you was two in the morning in Bournemouth after graduation. Yeah, that was, yeah, <laughs> it, that was <laughs> it was a treat. It was a treat. Honestly, one of my favourite days of the year, graduation. I was, I was. I mean, it, it feels like only yesterday because I was, I was sort of sickening for what may or may not be COVID or the flu at the time. So we had a, a great big fun day, watched loads of students graduate, had a really nice after party with some some bubbly then when I had a lovely evening blew some cobwebs out a little bit and then I didn't wake up for about four days so <laughs> it's uh it's nice to see you again so soon <laughs> living your best life I'm glad I'm glad you could bring yourself back to uh to record a career in ruins you could see where your pri priorities have, have just, just about made it back <laughs> how about you what have you been up to I'm good you well, obviously that was a lovely day and um it was so so lovely to see so many inspirational individuals people we work closely with like Hayden Scott Pratt and Siggy um who both received awards for their uh, for their masters university awards yeah, yeah best, best students in the university yeah Don't mind that. <laughs> and some brilliant undergrads as well which um oh, tash i think who was on our uh career in ruins in the field episode so lovely yeah. to see her getting her undergraduate degree um and so many just brilliant and enthusiastic and bright-faced um early careers individuals so huge congratulations to them and anyone else around the country that's going through graduation at the moment it's, it's something to be super proud of and I, we we're looking forward to seeing you all on a career in ruins episode in the future in some <laughs> shameful form um but other than that i've been um i've been out in norfolk for a few days the last couple of days i've been um mooching around thetford forest and talking to people around best practice in forestry archaeology but then also uh looking at some pretty interesting sites 
That sounds, sounds interesting. Any any sites in particular? Um, yeah, well, a few few interesting ones. That sort of there's some lovely rabbit warrens to look at. And there's um there's a medieval cross that was along a pilgrim's way, which was very cool. Just now in the middle of a lovely beech forest, but presumably would have been quite an open landscape once upon a time. So that was quite quite interesting. And then loads of round burrows. One of which was an absolute stonker. I mean, I'm I couldn't tell you. Maybe hundred meters in in diameter it was huge big bell barrow um bigger than anything i've seen out in the, in that region before and actually in the discussions it was described as the silbury hill of thetford silbury hill it's funny you should mention silbury hill Lawrence, oh, right, cause, is that, Eric? yeah because our guest today has actually done some excavations there oh. today as as you know, really, we are, we are joined by the incredible Dr. Jim Leary, who works at the University of York, is a fellow of the Society of Antiqui Antiquaries. I can never say that. And I'm not even going to edit it. I'm just going to leave it in as it is. Um, who, as I said, led excavations at Silbury Hill and Mardenhenge, but recently has published the book Footmarks, A Journey in into our restless past which shamefully i've not read yet but the website ensures me it's a book full of engaging authoritative and fascinating stories of the past showing that the human past is shaped by restless movement along tracks and trails and some amazon reviewers have described it as a guaranteed mood lifter or a lyrical and occasionally humorous prose also someone one reviewer was delighted that the book taught me a new word Jim, Jim, help me. <laughs> what does that mean? And again, sorry, did you sneeze there? I know you can cover. <laughs> it's the it's the um kind of the the gentle the gentle whisper of wind through the the leaves of a tree, you know. That sort of Ooh. yeah, these yeah, and like petrichor, which is the smell of of like fresh earth after it's rained for the first time in a while. These things that we we see all the time as archaeologists, they have words. It turns out amazing. I mean, now I've just learned new words. So is this a career in ruins first, where someone might learn something listening to the podcast? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly someone. I mean, most our guests will teach our listeners, whereas we don't. But yeah, <laughs> that's another discussion. Jim, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's so lovely to see you, um, and it, it's a real pleasure to to have you along and to to share your career in ruins story with us. So I wonder if you could just kick us off by giving us a, a, a overview of your career in ruins today. <laughs> well, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. It really is. I've um I've I've listened to your podcasts and um you know seen you guys in action all the time and I could just sit here and watch you two chat. It's like an episode of staged from where I'm I'm <laughs> where I'm stood. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I suppose my my career. How long have you got? Twenty five years. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you a minute per year. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, well, I mean, like most archaeologists, I guess it started off with a very um, a very sort of early love of of the past and that sort of thing. Um, I I spent a lot of my childhood in foreign countries actually because my my parents well my father worked for the airlines so we did a lot of traveling around and my mother did as rig originally as well but we we traveled all over the world and we we lived in various places and one of those places was cyprus um and we were young and my old brother uh produced a a, a great big lump of amphora from the sea 
on one occasion absolutely you know amazing we used to spend our days just sort of swimming around and snorkeling and things and this had obviously been washed out of something and then washed up and um uh it was kind of one of those moments of of oh my goodness this is this is real you know and and what what really sort of grabbed me was that on the very top of the you know these armfrits have these great big handles and on the very top of it was a thumbprint um and obviously the the the, the maker you know presumably when the when the amphora was had was had just been made and was hadn't been fired yet had sort of picked it up and left a thumbprint in it and it just you know it's one of those moments that uh, people talk about all the time and you think nah that's that's not real but it was you know it was that one of those moments that sends an electric shock through you, you think, this is that's amazing this sort of this connection to someone else um and we used to find these these bits of pottery in our back garden you know all over the little sheds all over the place and so there's i sort of always had a, a kind of a love for it and then when we came back to england for a while i would do exactly the same thing again but I, I'd, I'd walk the dog and as i was walking i'd be looking at the ground at these ploughed fields around me and i um, started to realize that there were pieces of struck flint and of course i didn't know what what they were or, or what you were meant to be doing with them but in the sort of schoolboy way i would i would collect them and and you know i now know that what i was looking at was actually a fairly vast um uh late mesolithic um sites with lots and lots of, of sort of flakes and a couple of microliths that have been sort of moved by the plow up into the plow soil um, but I used to collect these things, and I used to mark with a little cross on a on a um, map where I found them. And then one day I found uh, an arrowhead. It's amazing. I, I, I wish I had it here to show you over Zoom. Um, I put it up on Twitter a while ago. It's this beautiful leaf-shaped arrowhead, um, absolutely wafer thin. Um, you can hold it up to the light and and see the light straight, you know, come straight through it. It's just again, it's one of those moments where I realised that. I was looking at something that was a proper tool. It wasn't just sort of a bit of rubbish that I was making up, but actually something. And again, it was this sort of spark. Um, and it just gave me this lifelong, absolutely lifelong love of, of, of archaeology and finding things. So it came from there, really. And then talking to my history teachers at school and realising that there was such a thing as archaeology, because I didn't really know that, um, realizing that indiana jones was an archaeologist which i hadn't quite <laughs> clocked even at that stage excited me even more so i i then thought do you know what this is what i want to do at university so i i, I um applied to cardiff university and and was interviewed and um got a got a, a place there and packed my bags and off i went my parents had already moved out to hong kong or china or some so by that stage so um i was sort of my, my old brother gave me a, a lift up and um and i just loved it i was i was kind of i was one of these people that wasn't very academic at school i wasn't very good at school um i didn't like it very much i didn't i found it very sort of closeting and and stifling and uh, I didn't do terribly well, but I did okay enough to get into Cardiff University, obviously. Um, and it was, you know, I was, I, some some point during the, I don't know, the first year, I think, at Cardiff, and it just struck me that this is this is the career, this is this is what I want. And I did really, you know, I started doing quite well. I started getting essays that were like 75, 76%. And I was thinking, my goodness, this is it. So, um, you know, that 
that's where I that's where it started from. It's this sort of you know childhood love, this boyish or girlish, this sort of you know childish fascination with finding things, which I think is you know it's curiosity, which I think exists in all of us. Um, it's the same curiosity that that means little kids kind of peer into rock pools and things like that. Um, you know, archaeologists really all we're doing is just peering into rock pools that sort of a little windows into the past, aren't they? And we and you just want to see what's there. Just what's there? I just want to know. I just want to look underneath that bit of soil. I want to find out what that lump and that bump is. So yeah, so that's where it came from. Um, and then I realized whilst I was I mean, I wasn't very clued up, I must admit, but I realized at some point during my degree that I that there's such a thing as commercial archaeology and that you can actually get paid to do this and that was that blew me away and I thought you know what I'm going to do this. so I, I originally had a place to stay on at Cardiff and do a, a, a master's a research master's with Alistair Whittle and I was kind of you know I was thinking well maybe this is this is what I'll do I'll become an academic and do it. and then I found out that I could go off and get paid to do it so I thought I, I chucked all that in and and went off to London and worked in development-led archaeology and I had just the most amazing time there um, digging loads of different sites not I've always been interested in prehistory and that's sort of where my love came from and you don't get huge amounts of it we we don't tend to find that much of it in London um, it's mostly medieval and Roman stuff but the, the what we were and some really nice Saxon stuff actually but what we were finding was amazing and um, you know within a year there I was supervising and then in a few years I was supervising big sites in the city of London and and yeah I just I just uh, sort of turned my back on academic archaeology and thought this is this is the bee's knees and slowly over the years I kind of worked my way up to towards the end I was actually project managing and uh, then one day it struck me that I was no longer doing archaeology I was kind of phoning up portaloo companies and arguing over day rates for them and things like this or organizing them to be cleaned for other people and I thought wait a second this is not what I this is not what I signed up for so um so a job came up at English Heritage and I I applied and was very very lucky to get that and it was back when English Heritage and Historic England were one organization um this was back in in 2005 and um I got the job as a as the prehistorian down in Fort Cumberland and yeah dug some amazing sites from there really amazing sites and it took me took me a number of years to realize that actually i really i was ready now to come back into academia so i excavated some fantastic sites silbury hill is one of them and mardenhenge another one you know it's really really fantastic uh, internationally important sites but uh, after a while, I thought I would like to go back and teach. So I got a job at Reading and and then subsequently, a few years later, a job for lecturing at York. So that's where I am. Um, and I've never lost that that fascination for the past, that, that curiosity, that love of finding things. Um, that's always stayed with me. And I remember when I first started in, in development-led archaeology and somebody sat in the pub and said to me, uh, you know, I just said, "Oh, I love it! I'm so so passionate about this about this subject, and I'm really pleased to be here." And they said, "Don't worry, that will go. Uh, you'll be you'll be jaded soon." Um, and I'm just, you know, I just feel the luckiest person alive that I've never been jaded by it. I've I've never been a big fan of of cynics. You know, you see it all the time. Actually, um, <clears throat> you see it even in in young people. 
um, you know, they, they, they've kind of developed a certain cynicism. It's very easy to to be cynical. It's really hard to be positive and passionate all the time. Um, that's where the that's where the real true graph comes from. Being being cynical and and you know casually negative about stuff is dead easy. Um, so, but I've I've never lost that that uh, passion for it. I've never lost the, the 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 drive to find out more, and I've never lost that curiosity. And I don't think I ever will now, to be honest with you, as I am knocking on the door at 50. I'm I'm hopefully, you know, I will carry that through for the rest of my my career. And as we know, archaeologists never retire. So probably for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's amazing, Jim. Thank you so much. And what I love about that is you just captured the essence of what career in ruins is all about there's there's a certain type of person that gets invited to career in ruins and it's the people that ooze that enthusiasm and identify the how easy it is to be cynical and and or not passionate but um but as you say that people that are feel lucky enough to be able to identify that they they love it enough and they're also driven enough to to fuel that enthusiasm and make the most of that enthusiasm and 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 ride that luck whatever whatever luck is based on a more recent podcast that might have come out but um <laughs> but what i particularly love about your career is um that i think is quite unique to what we've seen so far on on the on the podcast over the last four years or so is that you've got a really nice stint in commercial archaeology so developer-led archaeology curatorial archaeology sort of working with historic england looking after the nation's significant archaeological record doing research feeding into decision making policy etc and then the academic side of it is which you're in now and i obviously each of those have similar similarities but what they all have um quite big differences both in a positive and a negative scenario i wonder yeah. if you've got any quick reflections on on the the sort of differences <laughs> between those, those careers yeah i think i mean they, they, they're, they're completely different careers in a sense and archaeology remains the theme through it but they they're, they're doing different things um but um <clears throat> i mean I, I i absolutely loved you know my time in london i that was really that for me, that was where I cut my teeth. That's where I learned the craft of archaeology, um, you know, digging day in, day out, whatever the weather and all the rest of it. Um, but it's a fundamentally different thing to then working at English Heritage, which is, you know, quite a lot more public facing. Uh, the monuments are, are in, you know, public or yeah, public guardianship and, and you know, they're, they're sort of of a, of a more bigger scale than than I was used to before um, my timetable and and the sites I was looking at was no longer driven by the developer um, but uh, by yourself you know we could we could at the time at least you know there was there was money to to actually develop research projects and say actually we need to know a bit more about sites in this area so we're planning this and this um, and take it right the way through to conclusion so they're, they're completely different things and then again universities completely different um you know i i could be teaching i don't know accountancy or something uh, or zoology but and it would be largely the same as the sort of job that i have now which is as well as derek will know you know at universities it's largely a sort of it's largely administrative <laughs> and then you try and fit in sort of uh, teaching and research around that it's kind of a, to, to, to me universities were a, a little bit like um 
you know, you're being asked to do something. You go, oh, yeah, I can do that. That's within my skill set. And then you get there and they say, ah, but we're not going to, we don't want you to do that. We actually want you to do this, this, and this. You go, ah, that's not within my skill set at all. Don't care. Keep going. And then they say, and then you start doing those. You think, oh, yeah, I'm getting into a groove. I can probably do this. And then they say, yeah, but we've got this brass band and we're going to march it around you and it's going to blow its trombone in your ear and it's going to clap its cymbals in your face and it's going to keep doing that. And you can't drop the ball. You have to carry on doing exactly what you're doing. And you've got to be the best because at the same time, everyone's going to be writing, doing surveys and writing remarks about you and scaling you and scoring you and 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 by the end of it you're kind of you know your nerves jangle and you you feel frazzled so university again is, is a really it's a really fundamentally different thing um but it is but you, you but you have to you know we're teaching the next generation so you've you've got to keep that passion you kind of have to black out all of that or blank out all of that other stuff um, and just remain focused. Our job now is to teach that next generation to pass on the baton, to give them the, that passion, and to you know to to to, to you know make them realise that they don't have to be cynical. They can just be really passionate and positive, and that's okay. I I I, I must admit, I, I don't think I can think of a conversation we've had with someone over the last however many years we've been doing this podcast where so much of what you said has resonated with me from beginning <laughs> to end, um, right the way back to not being particularly academic before you went to uni and studied archaeology. I mean, I was exactly the same. I failed failed miserably at A-levels before going to university and suddenly getting top grades. It's like, this is brilliant. This is great. This is such a different way of thinking, different way of doing, and it, it inspired me in such a similar way. And uh yeah, I'll, 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 I'll leave the academic comparisons because I think you've covered it perfectly well there. But you, b- before we start, before we hit record, you mentioned your latest career move, which I I must admit, as you were telling us, I was incredibly envious of. I think, and we'll we'll get back to envy a bit later. But it's it's a it's a it's a really big leap to go from the kind of the academic grind. It's again another big leap in your career to go from the academic grind of as you say admin the joy of teaching the joy of helping the next generation through trying to get publications out for other academics to read and judge you on and all of that malarkey to actually writing a book that someone outside of our discipline might want to read and that's that's something i'm so i i can't think of in awe of i think of that that ability to to shift to that medium and and tell a tell a story and i can't wait to read it i've just downloaded the audible version in fact and that's going to be my commute for the next week um i i i mean you told us before the podcast but if, if you could if you're happy to share that with our listeners mm. as well how you go from the job you were in in terms of a full-time academic post at york to being an author yeah, well, I, I mean, so I've been driven by this desire for to understand movement and and particularly walking in archaeology. Um, it's it's something that I've been just absolutely captivated by for you know the last fifteen or so years. I've kind of I I, I edited volumes on it and I've I've run tag sessions and various things on the subject. Um, and the more I've learned, the more passionate I've become about this this subject of, of of walking you know footprints footsteps paths roads big big journeys you know sailing but big migrations and all the amazing stuff that's coming out of archaeology right now this kind of you know ancient DNA and and, and so on um that I, what I, that, so I, I wrote all the kind of you know I wrote an antiquity article with with my dear colleague Martin Bell 
um, last year or, or a couple of years ago, whenever it was. And, uh, um, you know, so I feel like I've kind of done the academic stuff for the archaeology of movement and walking. But what I what I wanted to do was kind of is it there's a, there's a real I mean, in in in, in nonfiction narrative publishing there's this you know there's loads and loads of books about walking and, and Robert McFarlane has been amazing and and really sort of trailblazed to use a pun um uh sort of a, an entire audience that want to read about paths and, and and things like that and I kind of I wanted to do that but I wanted to do it from an archaeological point of view and the, the, the trouble I have with I love nature writing it's my genre and, and you know my literary genre it's where I it's what I read to feel comfortable you know to comfort myself to feel comfortable to relax you know i read nature writing and it's always you know it uses archaeology quite often but what it tends to do is refer to it in a very passive sort of a way and a not very scholarly sort of way um and then it, it sort of falls back into then kind of making these sort of grand sweeping statements based on that and i think no no archaeology is so much more I and mean, the, the the real archaeology is actually really really exciting tell the public the public deserve to know more about archaeology so it was having sort of done all this academic stuff about you know the archaeology of writing i then wanted to write this book on on uh, the archaeology of movement and walking and stuff for a broader audience and so i sat down and i i did that and i wrote the you know i wrote the book and i drafted it and i wrote about 15 16 different drafts of it and i got the book that i really enjoyed and i thought this is going to be good and eventually i got an agent after maybe i don't know 20 rejections from publishing companies you know publishing houses um sending it to various agents on spec saying hey would you publish a book and all of them you know the ones that bothered to reply to me they sort of said the same thing which is oh you know it sounds good and there's there's you know this is sort of you know an area that sells quite well generally but um but archaeology i'm afraid is a bit of a deadening subject you know which was just like a knife to my heart and i was like what this is just you know this is not right so anyway eventually i, I was put in touch with the, my wonderful wonderful agent who keeps his head down and and um so i won't mention his name just in case he, he doesn't want it mentioned um and uh he he said this is this is great jim this is you know it's, it's a nice well well polished book you now need to to go back to the beginning and basically rewrite it um because you know you 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 assume people know what a hinge is you assume this you talk about that you've got academic words in here da, 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 da. and so i was very lucky to have some study leave and took study leave and, and just sat down and reworked this thing um, and was put in touch with the wonderful uh, Jean-Paul Flintoff, another writer who also does editing, and he he um, helped me. And he was like, basically, this chapter, Jim, you need to chop, 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 chop it up. It's lots of different chapters, and then let's re reorder it, and it's going to look like this. Now do that for the rest of the book. And it's kind of this, this lesson on, you know, it's a masterclass, really, um, on how to write uh, narrative nonfiction for the wider public, for, for the trade market, and not for, for academic colleagues. Um, and I learned so much, and it just got to the end of it, and I was so exhausted, but it was just so absolutely wonderful. And and the book has just been so, you know, the, the, the publisher's icon produced a book, which I, I can't, you know, I just could never have imagined writing, you know, something that's so beautiful, 
and it had been really well received. And I thought, you know, I want to do more of this. This is this is firing up, you know, this is firing all of my pistons. And I want to do, you know, I, I, I've got more. There are loads more stories out there. Um, and uh, so I, I, I yeah, made the made the decision. The university were kind of going through changes. Um, we were moving from three terms to three terms a year to two semesters a year, uh, which meant sort of complete reconfiguration of, of our teaching and all the modules and all the rest of it. And I just thought during this period of change, actually, I'm going to do something that I've always wanted to do. And I was spurred on by my wife, who just kept saying to me, do it, do it now. Do, this is your chance to, to do it. So I, I said to them, please, please, I'd like to go part time. But I don't want to do just a few days a week, you know, a few days on, a few days off a week, um, because I think work can easily creep into that. What I want to do is have one semester off and then work the next semester. And so um, and thankfully it was all agreed. Um, I went through the university channels and and uh, so now I work part time. So I work. So I write for six months of the year and then I teach for six months of the year. And I mean, apart from just you know the panic I have when I see my pay packet once a month and realize that this sacrifice is um, you know almost unbearable but it's so worthwhile so worthwhile and I just have loved it so I've just spent the last semester writing the next book actually I'm what anyway I won't go into this, but one book has actually turns into two so I've got these kind of two books going at the same time at the moment not quite sure how it's all going to work out. I'm at that kind of grappling stage. Um, and then after the the new year, I'll be going back to do six months of teaching, which I'm really looking forward to. I've got a whole new module on the Neolithic of Britain and, uh, and Ireland, which I'm really looking forward to teaching. Um, and then once that's over, back to my writing and and try and nail, you know, nail what these books actually are. And it just feels like, I've got my, I've got, it feels like that brass band that I was talking about earlier has gone. I've silenced them somehow. And for the first time in very, very long time, I can actually think. Um, and it's just wonderful. Really is wonderful. It's, it's a it's a privilege, absolute privilege. And I know it's a privilege. And I don't, you know, I, I, I respect that privilege every single day. That's, yeah, that's brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And the book, I think, is something to be super proud of, not not least for the beautiful cover, but the uh, the fantastic content that's found within it. And then look forward to uh, to seeing what comes out of the uh, next uh, six months of writing for these these next two books. So, I as I say, that's something to be very proud of. And I, I think I'm going to give you a free pass on that. But um, as most listeners will know, we have our first or second question after after the overview of your career in ruins is. Is something you've done to date that you're particularly proud of so if we put the book aside unless you really want to talk about the book again but um what, <laughs> what of that, that that career that spans quite a substantial amount of time is there is there one standout project that you're particularly proud of um yes there is actually um <clears throat> and i i suppose i mean I, was, I suppose probably the most famous or the best known site that i've done is, is silbury hill um and we had a you know, and um, uh, again, that was what an incredible privilege that was to lead a team of archaeologists into the middle of Silbury Hill. Um, we were there for, um, we were on site almost for a year, actually, just digging in it and on it. And 
what you know how how amazing to spend so much time with with such a wonderful monument such a, a monument that has seeped deep deep into my very very bones so that you know it feels like a part of me um and i loved that site i loved it more than more than words more than i can explain it, it's it just is you know it's it, it it feels like it was the well it is the most defining part of my career and i think it probably will always remain the defining site of my career but it's not the one that i'm the proudest of because but just quickly jim sorry to interrupt yeah. but for, for those people that don't may not know what silbury hill is because we've got people that listen across the country i mean it's a pretty spectacular site it's this giant prehistoric mound found within the avery world heritage site won't it give us a quick overview of the, of the headlines yeah it's a it's an extraordinary an extraordinary monument it's a mound it looks like an upturned pudding bowl it's 31 meters high making it the largest prehistoric earthen monument in europe actually um and and actually just slightly taller than than the very tallest Mississippian mounds in in the US, the Cahokian mounds. Um, it's vast, it's huge, um, and it's a massive enigma. But um, a whole series of of antiquarian digging. So there were all sorts of stories that there were sort of gold statues and various things in the middle of it. And so antiquarians dug into it, and and all of these had had create had destabilized the monument, um, particularly. Um, uh, a, a, a BBC sponsored excavation in the 60s, um, uh, which we now know nothing to do with the BBC. Actually, the Ministry of Works paid for somebody to backfill it. And we now know that they didn't. They they basically took the money and ran. They only in fact, they only backfilled the, fi- the, the very final two metres of the tunnel. The rest was left open. And what that meant is over the following decades, it kind of you know the, the chalk frittered down into the into these tunnels and slowly that made its way to this to the summit of this hill and a hole appeared on the top and then so archaeologists were brought back in english heritage archaeologists were brought in to reopen that tunnel with engineers and miners and, and basically record it but then stabilize the thing which is what we did so that, that you know so yes it's, it's an amazing monument well worth going to see you can't go up it um, but you can stand at its foot and you can you know wonder how four and a half thousand years ago with no metals only with you know antler picks and shoulder blade shovels people actually built this thing you know it'd be a task nowadays with all of our technology little and then anyway so yeah so I, I was very privileged to lead the team of archaeologists in 2007 and 2008 to do that work whilst i was there um i was staying at marlborough uh, which is the nearby town and i was driving down the a4 to to silbury hill to the site every day and every day i would pass another another big mound known as the marlborough mound which actually sits within marlborough college the public school um and every day i'd look at it, I thought, oh, that looks just like a smaller version of silbury hill um you know we know that it was a medieval mod because it had a you know, it was good historic records at her tower, and it was used as a mot and all the rest of it. Um, so I, I, but I, but, but I kept the question of, but was it originally a Neolithic mound like Silbury Hill? Kept kind of bouncing back into my mind. So when we finished the work at Silbury Hill, I, um, I got in contact with with the Marlborough College, and they put me in touch with a wonderful group of people called the Marlborough Mound Trust. And I and I spoke to them and I said, Do you know, 
I've just finished the work at Silbury Hill down the road. I would love to know the date of your mound. And they said, yes, well, so would we. How would how would we go about do, doing that? And we're not going to put a tunnel into the middle. And I was like, no, no, we're not going to put a tunnel. You know, the, the tunnel into Silbury was, you know, multi, multiples of millions of pounds to do that work, two or three million pounds to do that work. So we're not going to do that. And they said, well, how are we going to get dates from it? And I said, well, I wonder whether if we were to drill a core just to like a 10 centimeter diameter core down from the summit right the way through the mound and the the, the core material comes out in these sort of one meter lengths which you can then mark up and take off and analyze and if there's any charcoal within that um we will be able to get some radiocarbon dates on that and get a date on the mound and they're oh that's a brilliant idea okay well um We'll, we'll pay for it. Uh, how, you know, how, how should we go about doing this? So I put them in touch with a company, uh, Geoarchaeology, that did the cause. And they said, how much do you think it's going to cost to to do this work? And I said, well, I don't know. It's probably, I, I was just making it up at this stage. I said, probably a thousand pounds per core. Let's do two cores. Let's call it two thousand pounds. And they said, well, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. That's, that's great. Yeah. Bargain. And uh, so anyway, I got a phone call about a week later. Chap on the other end of the phone said, um, we've got the quote back and it's £24,000 to do this work. And what I hadn't realised was because the mound is surrounded by college buildings, school buildings, they actually had to, because it's so big, they need a crane to put the pouring machine on the top. Um, but they had to dismantle the crane to bring it in and then they had to reassemble it and then and then they had to do the same thing and as and as soon as they said that i said do you know what actually it's a pig and a poke we don't know whether we're going to get it it's it's a needle in a haystack so let's forget the whole thing and they said no 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 we're we're we're, we're into it now we've you've got us excited so we're going to go ahead we've, we've already booked them um you know for the next half term so uh they did so they, the cause went in uh, I took them back down to Fort Cumberland. Matt Canty analysed the cores. He managed to get out six good pieces of charcoal. We radiocarbon dated it, and we were able to show that the Marlborough Mound was originally a Neolithic mound, so the same date as Silbury Hill. Now, that, that, that to me was just the most extraordinary period of time. Um, we put out a press release, and it just went wild. You know, I was being interviewed by Al Jazeera television, and various mad places and um uh so that's what i'm proudest of because the reason is because i loved silbury and it's like, like i say it's, it's it's attached to my soul now but silbury hill would have still been done if i didn't exist silbury hill would have been done by someone else the marlborough mound came from me um and that's for me my proudest moment perfect and and i sort of before I get to the next question, that's given me a very enviable moment. It's a, a moment to envy. Um, I mean, to 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 have, yeah, to have to have put that on the map, to have to have given it the character, the identity. That is such a such an amazing thing to have have in your CV, and I'm oh, I'm incredibly you. envious. Speaking of envy, um, <laughs> we, uh, we 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 always follow up our pride question with envy. So, is lo looking around at your colleagues, friends, people you know, people in the profession, people in the history of the discipline, is there anything out there in the world of archaeology you're particularly envious of? Oh, I don't know. I mean, um, academics kind of get envy all the time. It seems to me. Um, and it's part of this kind of, you know, 
cynical nature to 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 be envious so i try not to be too envious i'm you know your successes are my successes and all the rest of it i suppose i mean to, to answer your question i think the, the one site that's kind of eluded me um is i've, I've worked on amazing monuments you know henge monuments monumental mounds I've, I've excavated an early neolithic timber hall you know stuff that 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 many people are probably quite envious of themselves and but but they're all monuments i focused on monuments which is probably that because i was working for english heritage and i suppose the site that's eluded me a little bit is these kind of really amazingly well preserved um waterlogged sites um i don't know, must must farm you know is the go-to one and that jumps out and i, I mean yeah i'm envi i mean i don't know if i'm envious because I'm, I'm kind of I'm really pleased that it was done and and I'm really pleased that Mark Knight was the guy that did it. Um I'm not sure I would have been I don't I don't know if I'm actually good enough to do something like that. But that's a, you know that was an extraordinary site and this is a bronze age very well preserved bronze age village with the the bronze age building still surviving and the stuff inside the building still surviving right down to you know coils of of uh, thread and and all the bowls and you know wooden a wooden bowl with a with sort of porridgey type stuff in it and a spoon sticking out you know just the stuff that dreams are made of in archaeology um and I, I want a bit of that action you know not not that site that's done and i'm pleased like i say i kind of i'm not so envious that I'm not so envious that I wanted to do it because I don't think I could have done as good a job as as Mark did. Um, so I'm glad. I'm just glad that it was found, and I'm glad that it was done so well, and I'm glad we know so much about it. And I can't wait to see the publication that comes. You know, the final big publication. But yeah, if, if I'm in, I, I do get I do get these rushes of envy when I see these really well preserved peatland sites. So that's what that's what that's in my target now. I'm I'm working in Holderness. This is a this is a huge gap in in archaeological study um and it's full of peat and it's full of well-preserved stuff and we did a very nice site there last earlier this year and we're going back next year um and you know there were, we had little forays out into the peat um and we were getting things like you know dragonfly wings still iridescent and um, you know, beautiful beetles and beetle shells and stuff still sort of flashing green at you. And, you know, so we've got some wonderful stuff. It, pro it, it promises to be amazing. So that's where I'm, I'm hoping to, you know, find my must farm there. There's a, there's a few nice takeaways there. One, I like, again, it still feels there's an element there that you're, you're, you're driving your own destiny. You, you want, you, you like the idea of a wetland waterlog site. So you're going out to, to get yourself a nice wetland waterlog site, which is what career in ruins all about sort of carving out your own destiny in, in those areas and, and whatnot, which is great. Um, and I also like, um, it occurred to me that all the, a lot of the sites you mentioned and a lot of the work you've done with, you've done today in, in your career, certainly from historic England onwards, it's been big monumental archaeology, landscape archaeology. But what kicked it all off was a lump of amphora and a tiny little arrowhead, and that that sort of sort of circular circularity of our discipline that everything's exactly. equally yeah. as important and can shape anything, and you can't have one without the other, which is lovely. Um, Jim, we, we, we're rattling towards the end of the, the podcast now. And our final question as ever is, um, 
we'd love to give you some free tickets on our fully functioning time machine and we all we need to know is where you'd like to take it and then what you'd like to see oh well that's brilliant thank you very much i'm, I'm really looking forward to this one um now if i may um this may not be within the rules but uh i'd like to go back in into the past but if i may i'd like to stop off on the way and um well, save my brother who died in a car crash and yeah. just catch him and just, yeah, so just 12th of November, anniversary's just gone, um, 6.30 in the morning, 2003. I'd like just five minutes before catch him with that and just, just stop him, stop the car, stop him. Having done that and playing this game, I'll then go back into the deep path, which is where I'd like to go. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've, well, would I want to go back to see Silbury Hill being made? Um, uh, no, I'd like to go back further, please. I'd like to go back to the very beginning of the Neolithic, um, right at the end of the Mesolithic. And I want to be, so I'm, I'm, I would like to be somewhere around 4,100 BCE. Um, and I would like to see the first early pioneer farmers sailing across the channel and up the Thames estuary and I'd like to be with them, and I'd like to see them sit, sitting in these boats, whatever the boats were, we don't know, because we've never found one. Maybe, you know, presumably these massive sort of coracle-type things, but big enough to fit um, trussed-up animals and, and you know, cattle and sheep and goats and pouches of seed corn that they brought with them and their polished axes, and I'd like to see them settle in essentially, a well, what was a, a, a an occupied hunter-gatherer thickly wooded island because by that stage Britain and Ireland were islands uh, no longer attached to the continent and I'd like to see them hew out their their, their you know their, their own new life as farmers or sort of you know hunter gardener type people in essentially a, a, a mesolithic hunter-gatherer world um, clearing their first bit of woodland and growing their first corn, you know, growing their first crop on this island and presumably watched over, um, you know, peep, peeking out from behind trees like some slightly confused hunter-gatherers who, of course, themselves will no doubt have interacted with farmers across the channel anyways. They probably would know what's going on. But but just to see that, that very first step in Britain and Ireland becoming Neolithic, that very, very early days and um, set the set the trend for for changing, you know, set the trend for the society we are now, actually. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see what that interaction was. How was the what was the interaction like between these early pioneer farmers and the, the hunter gatherers? Um, what were the conversations? Um, you know, we sort of, you know, we have no sense of what they were like we get no there's nothing in the archaeological record to suggest that it was violent in any way um so presumably it, it was quite a peaceful process and that these you know two different ways of life lived in parallel side by side um but yeah so that's what i'd like to see please if i may Jim, thank you so much for joining us. It's not only been a, a pleasure hearing your stories, hearing about your work, hearing about your career, but an absolute pleasure to meet you. And I'm so happy to have to have finally put a face to a name after 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 hearing about you for so many years through free mutual friends and colleagues. Um, it, I 
the the whole your whole ethos in life and the whole way you've approached your career it's it's given me hope it's it's given me hope that not everyone needs to go down a jaded path and you can you can find a way that leads to happiness and keeps the joy and and hopefully we can all pass that on to the next generation of students it gives me such 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 a positive feeling for the future and i'm tremendously grateful for that so that kind of leads me to say to all of our listeners thank you for tuning in thank you for continuing to support us thank you to our small but very dedicated crew of patreons who keep the bills paid on the uh, on the podcast hosting fees but please please do go out and have a look at footmarks it's available in all good bookstores and as i've discovered during the podcast available on audible in audiobook format and i cannot wait to listen to it this next week and probably review it for the next podcast lawrence what do you think that sounds like a mighty fine idea and a mighty mighty fine idea jim thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure oh it's been wonderful thank you for inviting me